Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 117 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And I'm, I'm calling in for the first time from my new office. How exciting. It is exciting. And someday future recording studio for the both of us together when those times come again. Yes. How fun will that be? So fun. <laughs> it's the simple things. <laughs> Like being in a room together that we all dream of these days. Yeah, exactly. That'll be a lot of fun. And we'll definitely do a, a tour of the new recording space whenever we get there. Yeah, that'll be our celebration. We'll actually, you know, we'll take all sorts of pictures. We'll sit in every available seat. Not that there are that many, you know, but show off the tables and the windows. It's not that exciting, people, but it is exciting to me to have a space Absolutely. for all my, my things. Yes. So that's one announcement. We have another exciting announcement, which is our next read along. Yeah, we are moving along into 2021 already, making our plans for that. We are excited to announce our first quarter read along, which is going to be nonfiction. Yeah. A bit different. We usually have, I think all of our read alongs have been novels to they date. Have. Yeah. And so in 2021, we're going to shake things up a little bit. Yeah, we're going to throw some hitches in your gitches. Is that a saying? We're excited about it. You just made it, Emily. <laughs> just made it a saying. We're very excited. And this one is, it's different because it's memoirish, nonfiction-ish. It's been referred to as an ethnographic memoir, which is a new term to me. Yeah. So can you guess? Anybody want to guess? We'll pause for a minute. All right. If you guessed Milltown by... Carrie Arsenal, you guessed correctly. Bing, 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 bing. <laughs> Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains is the subtitle. And this is about Carrie's hometown of Mexico, Maine. I love that there's a Mexico, Maine. And a river that runs through it. And the influence that a paper company, paper mill, has on the town and her family generations of which have lived there. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this. And, you know, I've read some other novels, more novels than, I guess, memoirs as well about like coal mining towns, like in West Virginia. It's going to be interesting to read one from New England. Yeah. It, it's an industry town, basically, it sounds like. Right. And there's lots of paper mills in Maine because paper mills need to be by water. And there's a lot of water in Maine. And trees. So, and trees. Right. <laughs> exactly. Both <laughs> things that are needed. So one of the things we're super excited about is that the author will be joining us for yes. our read-along discussion. Yeah. She'll be joining us on the podcast for our discussion of the book and in our Zoom read-along discussion. Yep. Double... Yay. Totally. We're super excited. And that Zoom read-along is going to be on February 7th, Sunday, February 7th, 7 p.m. Eastern time. We're going to discuss it on February 16th, which is going to be episode 123. Wow. Sounds far away, but we know from experience that these things just sneak up on us. So we're trying to give people time. It is a newish release, so it's only available on hardback. But we figured that this gives people time also to get on their library wait lists or request it if your library doesn't have a copy. Right. Um, and so. it is available as an ebook and also audio, uh, just yeah. not paperback yet. And we usually try to go for paperback books, but again, we wanted to 
jump on this book. It's getting a lot of really interesting reviews and sparking some really great conversation. And we think the conversation is going to be so much more interesting having Carrie's input as well. I just can't wait to talk to her about it. So again, it's called Milltown. We have, um, we will start a Goodreads thread. So jump on it. Let us know how excited you are. Or if you're a little nervous about reading nonfiction, we'll be cheerleaders for you (laughs) along the way. Absolutely. And I know we have at least one listener, Sue, in California, who has said she started reading more fiction because of listening to the book Cougars. She's more of a nonfiction reader. So I think for some people, it might be a a joy to read some nonfiction with a group. Indeed. Um, should we also mention that we have started a bookshop.org page where if you feel like purchasing Milltown, it's available on our page and you get you help support the book cougars if you buy it that way. Absolutely. The book cougars and independent bookstores in general, because how it works for people like us, podcasters, booktubers, bloggers, they get a 10% affiliate commission. And then the other 10% goes to a, a, to the bookstore general pot. So you're helping to support independent bookstores and the book cougars. And we totally appreciate your generosity if you are able to order through bookshop.org. Because yes, we really do. you do pay for shipping mm. for them. It is a, a great organization to support. They've been generating millions of dollars to help independent bookstores who are really suffering during the pandemic. I know we've talked about that before. I think I saw a percentage that something like 30% of independent bookstores may close due to the Mm -hmm. pandemic. Yeah. And book sales in general were down. I saw a statistic 27% last quarter. So um, it's a tricky time. And we know, you know, it's a tricky time for individuals too. So no pressure, of course, access the book the way that you can, that works within your fiscal budget. Absolutely. Yeah. Times are scary. Yeah. Yep. What are you currently reading? I am reading a book that my co-host surprised me with. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Want to make me happy? Surprise me with a book. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was a rainy day in Guilford and Chris was actually dropping off to me my copy of Milltown, which she had purchased for us. And she had a little gift wrap book that I got to open and it's the best American food writing 2020. And this is edited by the chef J. Kenji Lopez alt. Oh, it has such a beautiful cover. I wish everyone could see it. And you know, as I'm opening it, Chris is like, I hope you don't have this already. And I did not. And I've read so far, I've read the forward in one essay and oh, I just love it. I love it so much. It's going to, it's in my office now, but it's been going back and forth with me and sitting on my nightstand. Awesome. So thank you, Chris. Oh, you're mo- more than welcome. It was, it's so much fun to have a book wrapped to give to mm-hmm. somebody too, because it is, <laughs> it's always fun to open something and it doesn't have to be just your birthday or a holiday. No, I think it's actually such a surprise when you're not expecting it. And it's also fun, I think, as a gift giver, when you just, you aren't under pressure to buy something for somebody, but you see something, you know, someone's going to like, and Mm -hmm. you just do it. And I know for some people, it's really scary to buy book people books (laughs) because they figure we have everything, but indeed we don't. Exactly. Yeah. Just hold on to your receipt. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Exactly. 
What about you? Well, I'm currently listening to The Book of Eels, our enduring fascination with the most mysterious creature in the natural world. It's by Patrick Svensson. It's a really good audiobook to listen to. I also have the hardcover I'm ch- holding up for Emily um, I, from the library. And I haven't really cracked the book yet, but listening to the audio, it's really an interesting look at eels. So little, as the subtitle said, you know, the most mysterious creature in the natural world, they just don't know that much about them yet. I love eels. They're delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. My favorite thing in Germany, my aunt and grandmother had lived in a northern German city called Bremerhaven. That's where I fell in love with fish and eating seafood. And smoked eels is one of my favorite things there. I don't know how this book will impact my eel eating. <laughs> I know that they are having a hard time population-wise because of overfishing and environmental mm. changes in the ocean. I'm sure I'll get to a chapter about that. It's interesting because Svensson talks in one chapter about Aristotle and what a student he was of nature, a scientist in his day. And he had right on about so many animals that he studied, like even octopus. Hmm. He really kind of nailed them. But with the eel, he completely missed the mark. And for, you know, up until now, people are still, they, they just don't know. They think they all start in the Sargasso Sea because that's what's been observed. And then they swim up into the North Atlantic and, and go off from there. Eel can be in salt water, fresh water, the ocean, streams, rivers. They can survive in mud. They can even survive for days on land. They wow. can slither to look for a new water source. fascinating stuff. So I'm sure not everybody is as into eels as I am. So I'll stop talking about it. But again, that's the book of eels, our enduring fascination with the most mysterious creature in the natural world by Patrick Svensson. And it has been getting a lot of great awards already. It it is an international bestseller. Yeah, I was going to say it's it just won another award that has to do with the environment I can't remember what the name of the award is. So I think a lot of people are fascinated with eels, Chris. I don't yeah. think you're in the minority. <laughs> well, and it's a good, it, this could be a good holiday gift for the fisher person in your life mm-hmm. because Svensson grew up fishing for eel with his dad. Yeah. So there's, yeah. there's some of that lore in there as well. Very cool. Well, I'm also reading a novel called Let Him Go by Larry Watson This has been out for quite some time, many years, and it got onto my radar because a movie based on this book was just released on November 6th, and it stars Kevin Costner and Diane Lane. Hmm. Count me in. Totally. (laughs) So I was like, I really want to watch this movie, but if it's based on a book, I'm going to read it first. Lo and behold, I came to find out that it's very highly recommended by the author Peter Guy, whose trilogy I talked about on an earlier episode of The Cougars. And it takes place in North Dakota, and the writing's very spare and beautiful. And the, the basis of the story is about an older couple who lost their son to a tragic accident, and their daughter-in-law and grandson have moved and the daughter-in-law remarried an abusive man. Mm -hmm. 
and they get in the car to try to go find the daughter-in-law and the grandson and bring the grandson home to live with them and all sorts of mayhem ensues, (laughs) which I will talk about more as I um, go farther into the book, but I'm really enjoying the writing. Um, He has published some other books and he's a teacher of writing and it shows he's very good at his craft. Again, it's called Let Him Go by Larry Watson and the movie um, starring Kevin Costner and Diane Lane. I'm not sure where it's available, you know, what streaming Mm -hmm. platform, but it did release on 11.6. So when I finish the book, that is going to be my treat. Excellent. Well, the other book I'm reading right now is another nonfiction I talked about this in a past episode, but then I kind of quit reading it for a while just because of other things. But I am back to reading Mediocre, The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America. And this is by Ijeoma Aluo. It's coming out December 1st, I should say too. So it is an advanced reader copy that I'm reading. She really goes through kind of the history of the harm done by when you only have one type of person being in charge Mm. and to the exclusion of everyone else. So I'm at the 71% mark in the book. And I have to say one of the most disturbing things, there's so many disturbing things in the book, of course, it's very readable. It's, she has a very relaxed, but pointed writing style, but you also almost feel like you're in conversation with her because she has some asides, kind of like, you know, WTF practically, not that she, uh-huh. you know, things like that. But one of the things is that when a woman is put in a position of leadership, the white men under her actually stop performing hmm. at the levels they had been prior when a man had been their boss. Does she give reasons for why she thinks that's the case? Yeah. Yeah, she does give reasons for that. I, as I said, I'm not finished yet. Uh, so I look forward to seeing where the book is going. She's talks about everything from, gosh, you know, the West in the 19th century to current representatives, AOC and other representatives who are really trying to bring a more progressive agenda as women of color and the, you know, the mountains that they're facing. I would really recommend this for people who are interested in change and who want to see different people representing our country other than just the typical older white men who, as we can all see, are wrecking our democracy right before our eyes. Well, it'd be interesting to know um, or to look up if she narrates this because I think it'd be a great audiobook. And she was so compelling when we heard her speak mm-hmm. at the Hachette Book Club brunch. Yes. Let's see. I'm looking at this right now. It just, yeah, it doesn't list who the narrator is of the audiobook that I could see yet. Yeah, I mean, maybe because it's not out. It, I mean, the audio might not even be finished. Who knows? Yeah. So again, that's mediocre. The Dangerous Legacy of White Male America by Ijeoma Aluo. What did you just read? A graphic novel. Oh, how cool. Yeah, I haven't read a graphic novel in a while. Um, and this is one that the U.S. Naval Institute sent me. It's from their Dead Reckoning Press, which is their graphic novel arm. 
It is called the Photographer of Malthausen, which was a concentration camp during World War II. And it is by Selva Rubio, Pedro J. Colombo, and Einstein Lana, Landa, excuse me. So this is the story of a photographer, a man who was a photographer in real life, who was from Spain and is in a concentration camp. He gets involved with the, the Communist Party that is within the concentration camp, because for those of you who may not know too much about the history, the Nazis, the fascists were completely on the opposite side of the communists. So they were like polar opposites, you know, Nazis on the right, communists on the far left. And so this is a, a story about him and his fellow Spanish communists within this concentration camp trying to find a way to survive the war, but then also to prove and document the atrocities that were going on within the camp. So as a photographer, uh, I should say his name, Francisco Boy, it's B-O-I-X is his name. He was actually, as I said, a press photographer. And he gets a position developing the film that one of the leaders of the concentration camp takes these photos and he develops them. He eventually becomes this person's assistant. And this man is a typical, you know, sick Nazi leader who likes to photograph dead prisoners in artistic ways. Mm. So it's really twisted. It's, yeah. it's a tough read. I'll show you some of the artwork, it, which is very, it's really in a lot of grays and blues with some other colors involved. I don't know if you could see that, Emily. Oh, yeah. I can post a screenshot after this episode goes live. So it's one of those, you know, you and I have talked a lot about World War II and the books coming out still about World War II and how they are more pointedly looking at individuals' experiences within their smaller group, within the bigger arena of what was going on in their theater of the war. Salva Rubio is a Spanish author and historian, who, so he's the one who wrote the story, and he talks in his preface a little bit about what you know factually, what can be known factually and documented, and then as an artist, what you do to fill in the gaps. Interesting. So this is a little bit of both, and it was very engaging. I read it in one read. So again, that was The Photographer of Malthausen by Salva Rubio. I finished The Cold Millions by Jess Walter. Oh, this book was so good. It was so good. He's such a great writer. And um, it takes place for the most part in Spokane, Washington around 1909. And it, it really takes into consideration workers and workers' rights and how people try to make a living and how difficult it is to make a living. And even though this takes place back in the day, as they say, it's very um, applicable to the world we live in today. It follows the life of two brothers and they're getting involved, getting into Spokane, looking for work and getting involved in the early, early time period of the industrial workers of the world. And then learning about Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who comes to town to try to engage workers to fight for their rights, which is a scary thing for workers to do mm -hmm. because they need to work and they don't want to offend their bosses. 
but lots of times they're not being treated well in the workplace. They're not making money or they're working in unsafe environments. And Elizabeth Gurley Flynn is a real woman in time. She, at the age of 19, as a pregnant woman, was traveling the country and fighting for workers' rights. It's amazing. Um, and she ended up being very involved in the Communist Party as an older person, but also helped to establish what is now the ACLU in the United States. So a fascinating figure in, in history and very cool that he mixed truth in fiction, in other words, historical fiction, but he does a great job of it. The title, The Cold Millions, refers to the millions of workers who are kind of out in the cold trying to make a living. And, you know, this is something I've talked about on earlier episodes, just in the work that I do in philanthropy. It's a frustration that I have that a lot of times the money that folks have to give away is made on the backs of people you know, mm -hmm. and lovely that the money's being given away. But on the other hand, perhaps we could also look at spreading the wealth. Jeff Bezos is a perfect example. The owner of Amazon was really taken to task by the philanthropic sector for years for not giving any of his money to philanthropy. Now he's very engaged in philanthropy and has millions and millions of dollars to give away. But you could also open up the New York Times and read articles about his employees complaining about their working conditions, right? Yeah. So I have some issues with that. But anyway, that's a whole aside. But so this book, even though it takes place back in the 19, early 1900s, it's very, the, what he's writing about and talking about, like I said, is something we all can be thinking about and understand today as well, which is kind of sad. But I loved it. There was also one thing I wanted to mention to my, my cougar who uh, knows about the classics. One of the story threads is about their love of War and Peace, mm. the novel War and Peace, which I didn't know was written in volumes and released in separate volumes. Right? Yeah, Tolstoy's big books. I think Anna Karenina was the same thing. Which yeah. makes sense because they're these huge tomes, right? Mm -hmm. But now we get them as one book. But, you know, there was this thing about like getting one, one volume one and two of, of War and Peace. And I thought that was a really neat, you know, like I learned something. I didn't know that. Yeah. So. Yeah. It's like those, you know, those 19th century novels did come out, you know, piecemeal, often, you know, serialized in the paper right. or a magazine. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so really it's about the early history of capitalism and working conditions. And one of the characters is one of these, you know, wealthy businessmen who owns a mine and doesn't feel like it's in his best interest to support unions, <laughs> right? So, and like I said, these are issues, President-elect Biden is talking about unions now. So these are issues that have not gone away. So it was interesting to read the early formation of unions and things like that in this book. Excellent writer, highly recommend it. The Cold Millions by Jess Walter. Awesome, that's definitely going on my list. Well, the the other book I read is also one that you read. We didn't plan it this way. It turned out to be a spontaneous buddy read. So fun. I was thinking about you the whole time I was reading it. <laughs> I was like, I wonder if Chris likes it. <laughs> we even started it on the same morning, not knowing yeah. that we had done that. And it's The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donahue. Her new book that came out this year, it's available in hardcover, the Pull of the Stars is set in 1918 Dublin during the pandemic. 
the influenza pandemic. And the main character is a nurse in a maternity ward for women who are infected with influenza. Just like take a minute and put that in your mind. Yeah. You know, like, can you imagine having the flu and giving birth as if giving birth isn't hard enough? <laughs> you know what? I wouldn't know, but this book, you know, I'm not, I've, I've never given birth of from my body. I'm not particularly interested in the ins and outs of childbirth. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> but this book was so fascinating because she really goes into the detail of nursing practices of the time. And it was almost like this nurse was, and she's working alone in this ward because everyone's sick, you know? So the, the hospital staff is down to, you know, beyond bare minimum. So she has multiple patients throughout the day she's dealing with and several die you know, that's one of the things about the influenza is that some people could be dead within hours and other people mm -hmm. lingered for weeks right? or never even got healthy again. It's quite similar in some ways to our current epidemic now. Yeah, I loved it. As I was reading, I mean, they're very vivid birth scenes and I was, was reading them. I was like, I wonder if Chris is going to like this. <laughs> I tell you, my, my lady parts were scrunched up in agony <laughs> reading this and it's just fiction i mean they do say that your brain fires in places where it would when you're actually experiencing something when you're reading it as i said i've never given birth but i was just like oh my god yeah it, there's some intense scenes but it's also i mean it only takes place over the course of two days the entire novel and it's it's got almost like the pace of a thriller, I felt like. Absolutely. You know, it was definitely a page turner. The character development, I thought, was wonderful. I loved learning more about these different characters. One of them, um, Julia, is the main nurse and the main character. There's another um, character, Bridie. Yeah, she kind of just appears. The nurse is in such desperate need of help. She's happy to, to have this young woman's help. And you kind of learn about... Yeah, where she came from. She's very naive and it's because she was raised in a home um, and just didn't have much life experience. But boy, do you get thrown into it. If you're on a maternity ward, there's no time to tiptoe into a situation. There's also a real life character, a Dr. Lynn, who existed in real life and was part of the Irish nationalist movement to have their own country, their own rule. Right. So her situation was interesting as well, uh, incorporating that into the story. And there's so much about not just the way, the, you know, the nurse did her duties, but also so much of Irish history has been entwined with the church. And right. this is a, a church, a Catholic hospital. It's a Catholic hospital, not a church. And so back in Ireland during this time, and I know in, in, it could still be the case that there are Catholic hospitals and Protestant hospitals. So you get the abuses of the Catholic church in here right. as well. And the way that they basically enslaved orphans, they were indentured servants for the most part. So Donahue just put so much into this book, but it didn't feel heavy when I was reading it. Like you said, it reads so much like a thriller and we don't want to give away 
any right. spoilers here. It's not a typical read-along where anything goes. But Donahue is from Ireland and now is in living in Canada. Right. But wow, her books, all of them, I've read about four of her books now and all of them are really, they just carry you along on a great story. Yeah, she's a great storyteller. And there are two things about the design of this book that I just wanted to mention. One is funny, I didn't notice it because I started this book on audio and got about a hundred pages in on audio and then picked up the book to read. And there's no quotation marks, which I know throws some people for a loop. It doesn't bother me at all. How do you feel about that, Chris? You know what? It took me a minute to get into the flow of it. And then I came to really love it. I just, nothing disturbed the flow of the book. Yeah. Uh, There weren't those, even just those unconscious slight pauses that you have when you see a quotation mark, because you know, there's this voice. This was just like pure storytelling. Yeah, I loved it. And then the other thing is it's split up in, there's not chapters, there's four sections of the book and they're titled red, brown, blue, and black, which I, at first I was like, what does that mean? And what it represents is the stages of the disease of influenza which I thought was a really brilliant thing as well. Yeah. That she designed how she designed the book. Absolutely. And it was, that was a hard thing for me because when I sat down, it was what la- Friday morning, last Friday to start reading it. I thought, well, I'll just read a chapter to get into it. And I was like, well, that's not going to work. <laughs> right. See, I loved it. It gave me a total excuse on, I started it too by audio on Friday. And then Saturday, I just looked at Jim and like, I'm not getting off the couch until I finish this book. You have been warned. <laughs> Well, that's the thing too. Like, you know, one of the theories of thrillers is James Patterson's mode of writing what's really short chapters that keep you turning. Like in each chapter ends in a cliffhanger. So you just keep turning the pages and, you know, you might say, I'm going to read one chapter before bed. And then before you know it, you know, you're 10 more chapters in. But this book, as you said, it reads like a thriller and it has none of that. It doesn't have the short chapters with the cliffhanger. I felt like so much of this book was just an exhausting cliffhanger. And I think at one point, even it's one of the, I don't know if it's one of the characters says something, or if it, if it is the narrator saying something like, you know, that it is the woman's body is going to war like a Mm -hmm. factory when she's giving birth under these conditions. And then the nurse herself is like at war, you know, and there, there is a thread too of, you know, world war one is, almost ended or it had just ended. I don't remember exactly. And Julia's brother is a veteran who's living at home. They're living together now. So you have this sense of like, it's not just the men who were in the front lines at war. It was also these women who are in the hospital giving birth to the next generation. Yeah. Which goes on every day. (laughs) Still. And I know our friend Kate, who was a nurse um, in this field, it's, it's tough, you know, because so much of what's going on in this book is her experience right. today. You know, people think medicine has changed so much and the environment might be slicker, but it's still the same bodies that you're yep. dealing with. It's very primitive. Yeah. The whole thing. Yeah, for sure. Great book. The Pull of the Stars by Emma Donahue. Highly recommend. Yeah. Two thumbs up. Yeah. Four thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have any couch biblio adventures? Did I had a whole 
array of them. I had like a half dozen this time. Good for you. Yeah. They were all really just great events. One that I had through the Northshire bookstore up in Vermont. And this was um, with Thomas Frank, who wrote a book called The People, comma, No, colon, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. He wrote the book, What's Wrong with Kansas, which was a, another bestseller. This book sounds is fascinating as well. He is a student of Kansas in like the 1890s and, you know, talking about how it was so radical back then and just how the populist tradition has been misunderstood. Historians understand what populism means, but social scientists and political scientists use it in a different way. There's this whole idea that Trumpism is populism, which it's not historically the same thing. Populism is more about a tradition of movement of working people coming together for economic democracy is, is what he said at one point. And we know that that's not the case now in the current administration of what's going on. But he talked about how, you know, in the 1890s when populism first became a party and it was the last viable third party in American politics. Uh, but he talks about how it shifted over time so that in like the 1890s, it was really a movement to rein in like railroad monopolies. People wanted to try and nationalize them instead of having them be individual corporate entities and end political corruption, which is just like, that's been going on since day one in this country and every right. country probably. But they also wanted votes for women back then. They wanted the secret ballot. Um, they wanted to change the gold standard. And then all the way up, like through the civil rights movement, like one of the things he talks about is that Dr. Martin Luther King was very much for workers' rights as well. You know, he was about improving things for working people overall, which is something that a lot of people don't talk about anymore in relation to King. You know, the focus now is on his civil rights for African Americans, um, but he was more complex than I think most people understand. And he, the author, Thomas Frank, said, you know, Trump is definitely not part of the populist tradition at all. He said of and all of the candidates in this recent election, Bernie Sanders was probably the close, closest to being a populist candidate. And he got into the current political situation. I, I'll, I won't talk much more about this because I think it, it probably is a really good read. And I'm wondering if it would make a good audio book to listen to. But he was talking about uh, Democrats today and how the Democratic Party is really going after the affluent vote, which mm. they do well with. And he was talking about how dangerous it is to have a left party of wealthy people because it opens the door for poor people to go for guys like Trump, mm. you know, mm. and as a lot of people are saying, the next quote, Trump won't be as incompetent. It's going to mm -hmm. be a, a much more sophisticated right wing movement that we might see unless the left party gets more democratic again. Hmm. So that's fascinating. Yeah. And these are these, scary. It is. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but again, that was the people know a brief history of anti-populism by Thomas Frank through the Northshire bookstore. One of our faves. Yes. I attended an event through Booksmith bookstore in San Francisco, which meant it was way past my bedtime. 
So I took couch biblio adventures to the next level and I did a bathtub biblio adventure, which is not for everyone. <laughs> I did uh, cover my web camera, even though this was one of those where it was speaker only, you know, you're just never quite sure enough. So be warned y'all, if you're going to, you know, take your webcam into some different places, you can cover up your webcam. <laughs> But this was with Ron Nyron talking about his book that had just been released called The Book of Lost Light, which takes place around the 1906 earthquake in San Francisco and talks about the early days of photography. I guess the book is about family loyalty and betrayal and things like that. And what was really fun about this event is he had his writing group as guests which there were about 10 of them. I won't list all of the authors because I believe I did that on the last um, episode. But one of the things he did, he read a little bit and then he asked each of them to talk about, you know, how when you're writing a book, you have to do research and what was one of their fun things or surprises that they discovered in doing their research. And they went around and, and all talked about that. And it was really interesting and then in the course of doing that, they talked about their different books, which of course made my TBR explode. I finally got to the point where I was like, stop writing books down. <laughs> but one of um, his writing group members is the author, Ann Packer, who I love. And she wrote this book called The Dive from Clausen's Pier, which came out years ago. And when I went to my first Booktopia event in Santa Cruz, she was one of the authors and she was there to talk about her book of short stories, which I hadn't had a chance to read or to purchase, but I brought my copy of The Dive from Clausen's Pier, holding it close to my heart and went up to her to have her sign it after she spoke. And she said, she looked at me and she said, have we met before? And I said, no, no, we've never met. I'm so excited to meet you. And then I handed her my book and she opened it to sign it and it was already signed. <laughs> We both looked at each other like, I guess we did meet before. So she must have, I must, I don't know Weird. what happened. I mean, unless I happened to buy a signed copy, but I doubt that had happened. I think I probably had met her and just totally forgot. But anyway, that's my Ann Packer story. I love her and I could totally stalk her if we lived close together. <laughs> so again, it was called The Book of Lost Light and the author is Ron Nyron and it was a great event. I really enjoyed it and was able to stay up past my bedtime. That's awesome. <laughs> well, I attended a couple more of the crime con events that I've talked about. That is uh, through the Mystery Writers of America, New York and Connecticut chapter. They've stretched out their usual one day conference into, I think it was five Thursday evenings. Well, two weeks ago, it was, there was a conversation with Charles Salzberg and Lauren Bright Pichero, who's a crime podcaster, a true crime podcaster. And then our buddy, John Valeri, our mystery man, talked with Barbara Peters, who is the owner of the legendary bookstore, Poisoned Pen Bookstore, and also the co-founder of Poison Pen Press. They do a lot of uh, mysteries, as you can imagine, from that title. But she started that bookstore when she's 50, and she's now 80, and still really going strong. And it's a not-for-profit bookstore. How cool. Yeah, so they're doing their events now online, like everyone else. So check them out. Um, they stream them on their Facebook page. So those were some cool events. Last night's last Crime Con event was with Walter Mosley and Sean Crosby, who wrote Blacktop 
Wasteland, which is one of my f- best reads of the year. And he announced that they are making it into a movie. Oh, good yeah. for him. So that's awesome. Yeah. Looking forward to that. Very good. That's a good segue into I watched the National Book Foundation Awards this week, which is really cool because that's one that I think you have to, if, if to actually attend them in person, I think it's like $10,000 a table or something wow. crazy. I don't know. But but it was really fun to watch them. They I thought they did a great job for a virtual event. Jason Reynolds, um, was the host or MC. He's currently the Library of Congress ambassador for young people's literature. And he's written several books as well. Walter Mosley was given a Lifetime Achievement Award. And I thought his speech was really, really of its of the moment. He did a really nice job. And then I'll just quickly prattle off the winners. The winner for fiction was Interior Chinatown by Charles Yu. And what they did was they had the um, chair of each of the committees kind of introduce and quote, give the award. And then it would flip over to the person accepting their award. So Roxanne Gay was the chair this year of the fiction committee. And then nonfiction was called, was the book was called The Dead Are Arising, The Life of Malcolm X by Les Payne and Tamara Payne. That was a little bittersweet. Les Payne has passed away. His daughter accepted the award on his behalf and I believe kind of finished the book, which is why she had her name appears on the book and did some research to, to finish it. The chair of that committee was Terry Tempest Williams, who I really like, yeah. and, and she gave a really nice introduction. Poetry went to DMZ Colony, written by Don Choi, and then translated fiction was Tokyo Yino Station, translated by Morgan Giles and written by Yumiri Conther, I believe is how you pronounce her name. So really great event. It was fun to see the books awarded to such a culturally diverse set of people. I have not read any of these, so more to add to the TBR. Great. Um, I attended a couple of Texas book festival events, which was online this year. One was with Nazanin Hozar and P. Jelly Clark. And P. Jelly Clark wrote Ring Shout, which was a great read, one of my f- another favorite of the year. You know, it's getting to that time of the year when everybody's starting to think and reflect on their reading for the year. And then Hozar, her latest is called Aria. Now she's originally from Iran and is living in Canada now. And Aria is set in the 1950s during the revolution in Iran. And Margaret Atwood has called it the Dr. Shivago of Iran. Oh, interesting. Yeah. So, and it sounds really good. It's uh, about a a girl who's orphaned and then two women who become mother figures for her. But that sounds like something I'm, I'm definitely putting on my to read list. Hey, a little fun fact. I just listened to an interview with Dolly Parton where she was asked what her favorite movie is. And she said, Dr. Javago. Oh, nice. Isn't that interesting? Such a beautiful music. Uh, Well, the movie is beautiful, especially for people who like snow for one. Yeah. (laughs) But the the music is so haunting. (laughs) I don't think I've ever seen it. So I'm going to have to watch it. Yeah, it's beautiful. Cuddle Up One Night with Jim. Watch that. It's, It's so romantic and twisted yeah of like I, I, I would, don't know I don't want to say like Wuthering Heights but there's you know we all have our different ideas of romance and love I guess 
<laughs> well said. <laughs> you know what? You mentioned Dolly Parton and yay for Dolly. I don't know if our listeners have heard about her donation in support of finding a vaccine. Um, yeah. Her donation has contributed greatly to a vaccine on the way. Yeah. So good for her. She gave a million dollars. Yeah. Go Dolly. Go Dolly. Yeah. Books and vaccines. That's right. <laughs> I'll just mention uh, two other quick events that I attended. One was um, from the Charleston to Charleston Literary Festival. And that was an event with Monty Don, who is my favorite gardener. Uh, He's a British gardener. One of his new books is Down to Earth. And it's taking you through his garden and gardening tips for a whole year, which is kind of cool. And he was in conversation with Sue Stewart-Smith, Her book is The Well Garden Mind, The Restorative Power of Nature. That's her book. Um, I have both of these from the library. She is a psychiatrist and a psychotherapist and a longtime gardener who comes from a family of gardeners. Sue and Monty have been friends for apparently like 30 years. So their conversation was really interesting and inspiring and just talking about getting your hands into the dirt and really kind of the differences too between like the UK and America where like in UK gardening is such a thing for, for many people, although fewer people have the opportunity as more people live into move into cities and may not have a plot, which is interesting because that did come up in the pull of the stars. Julia's brother, who's a war veteran works their plot that they have raising their own vegetables Monty was talking then about like in America, our idea of nature is going out into nature and hiking or shooting the rapids, you know? So, and it's more like consuming nature than actually getting into it, getting your hands dirty and the importance of seeds and seeing things grow and how good Mm -hmm. that is for your mental health. You know, once you have these seeds in your hand and you've seen repeatedly that these seeds can grow into something you can eat or a beautiful flower you can appreciate and that brings joy into your day, just how restorative that is. So that was a really cool event. That sounds awesome. Yeah. yeah. Enjoy that very I wonder much. if they're recording those and putting them up later. I, I didn't get to watch any of them and I'd love to. Yeah, I'll, I'll look and we'll see. And we'll definitely put links into the show notes yeah. um, if they are. And then the last event I attended was just last night. It was through the National Willa Cather Center, Daryl Palmer. His new book came out earlier this year. It's called Becoming Willa Cather, Creation and Career. And this looks at Cather's early life and a lot of her earlier writing that has been dismissed by a lot of literary critics over the years in favor of her later writing. And I am, you know, still doing, well, phase two of the Willa Cather short story project is coming up early next year. We're going to start again. And it will be reading a lot of her earliest writing I, I look forward to reading the book. I kind of, when I first got it, I did kind of start reading it and was reading around in it and then put it aside for God knows what, but I do look forward to getting back to <laughs> Other that. stacks. <laughs> yeah. So he did a, he did a pre-recorded presentation and then had a conversation with Tracy Tucker, who was the archivist for the National Willa Cather Center. Oh, cool. Yeah. She um, had some never before seen items that she brought out to share, you know, screen share. So those were my Biblio adventures. It was an exciting two weeks of events. Yeah, you were busy. Good for you. 
Do you have any upcoming jobs? You know I what? One. I have one too. Um, it's another one through the Northshire bookstore and it's with Jane Smiley. Oh, I have never read her. Her book, A Thousand Acres, have been, it's been on my reading list for decades now, I have to say. She does a retelling, I understand, of King Lear set on an Iowa farm. Mm -hmm. So I really, I, I don't know if I'll be able to read that novel before this event, but it is on December 8th at 5 p.m. Eastern time, mm -hmm. again, through Northshire Bookstore. And we'll put a link in the show notes for that. Cool. I have one on December 3rd at 5 o'clock Central Time with Skylark Bookshop with Catherine May, who's the author of Wintering, The Power of Rest in Retreat in Difficult Times. Oh, man. I know. I keep seeing things about this book yes. everywhere. I really want to read it. So I'm, I too don't think I'll get to the book before the event, but I'm hopeful that this will really inspire me even more to want to read it, which I'm already inspired to do. Yeah. So, yeah. It has a beautiful cover too, but I'm, I'm interested to, to hear it. And part of the reason that it's at that time is because she's in England. So, you know, it, it'll be late where she is, but I'm glad and, and hopeful that I can make it. Nice. So what about upcoming reads? What are you going to be reading next? I have one book that I scored at a little free library in a new to me neighborhood where I'm currently living in West Hartford. And it's called What We Lose. It's a novel by Zinzi Clemens. And it sounds so good. It got tons of press. Vogue called it the debut novel of the year when it came out, which was in 2017. So I'm really looking forward to digging into it. What about you? Well, I'm starting a one called uh, The Butcher's Blessing. It's by Ruth Gilligan. And this is another novel set in Ireland. So I'll be reading two Irish novels back to back. Um, this is an advanced reader copy, but I believe the book is out now. I think it came out November 10th. And it is about a photograph that this person takes that is the heart of the book from what I understand. And that's pretty much all I know. Then the other book I'm going to read right after that is a new one by Fanny Flagg. I had no mm. idea that she had one coming out. It's the wonder boy of whistle stop, which is, you know, the sun in uh, fried green tomatoes at the whistle stop cafe. I am just thrilled that she's revisiting those characters I am going to read the book starting with a little trepidation because I love those characters so much. I read Fried Green Tomatoes a couple times. I used to watch the movie practically on a continuous loop. <laughs> Uh-oh, <laughs> so, high standards. Hi, yeah, really. So we'll see how that goes. And then another book that I know is on a lot of people's minds is Barack Obama's A Promised Land, which I'm holding up to Emily this is a heavy book. It weighs 2.4 pounds. Whoa. Yes, it's, it's 768 pages, uh, but it's really quality paper, which is one thing that makes it a bit heavier. For comparison's sake, those of you who have recently had celestial bodies in your hands, that book weighed 9.6 ounces. Wow. So at 2.4 pounds, this is a a big book. I don't it gives think... a whole new meaning to the word chunkster. Right, exactly. <laughs> I might start the new year with that book. That is volume one of Obama's presidential memoirs. I just thought it would be kind of fun to run down 
other presidential memoirs because people were talking about, oh my God, it's 768 pages and it's only volume one. Well, recent presidents, so Bill Clinton's My Life was 957 pages. Reagan's An American Life was 752 pages. George uh, Herbert Walker Bush's, his book, A World Transform, was 587 pages. George W. Bush's Decision Points was 512 pages. And then Jimmy Carter, who I love, his book, A Full Life, was only 272 pages. <laughs> Maybe he skipped a few parts of his life. I don't know. Yeah, who knows? Um, he, But I mean, Carter did write a lot of other books too, but you know, it's I mean, he was a one-term president as well. Right. That yeah. could have some, although, you know, so was George Herbert Walker Bush. He was a one-termer as well. I did download the audio of that. And I have to say, I did listen to the preface just because I wanted to hear his voice. And now I have been obsessed with watching interviews with him. So I listened to his interview with Terry Gross and I listened to the 60 Minutes interview he did. And so that too is an upcoming read, but I don't think, oh, we'll see. I'm not sure I'll get to it soon maybe i'll do what you're doing and make it you know after the first of the year yeah but well, i do love hearing his voice i do too i mean so he does yeah if he narrates the audio i might i might do that we'll yeah, see or, or do both maybe yeah because yeah. you know our biceps will get a workout holding yeah. the book it's so obama you know he's such a fit man i think he really was like make the book heavy so people can get a workout while they're reading it <laughs> Man. So coming up next, we have an interview with yeah. Patrick Sweeney. He is from everylibrary.org. We had a great time talking to Patrick. They're an organization that helps support libraries. Who doesn't want to support that? Exactly. Such an important organization. Libraries are, the budgets are always on the chopping block. Uh, referendums can be challenging to pass in some communities that may not understand the importance of libraries and how much they do for their community. One of the things they have is um, a new campaign called One Book, One Congress, which they just let us know about yesterday. And for every $20 that they raise, they're going to send a copy of the book, Inspiring Library Stories, to a member of Congress to help them understand the importance of libraries. So we'll put links to all of this stuff in the show notes, things that Patrick talks about, we'll put in the show notes. So just enjoy our interview with him. Super compelling, interesting guy. I also think it might go down in history as the first time that someone has used the word fart on the podcast. It could be. We'll see. Mm -hmm. Maybe a listener will dispute that fact, but <laughs> <laughs> enjoy our interview with Patrick. Hi, everyone. We are so happy to welcome Patrick Sweeney. Patrick sits on the board of directors for Every Library Institute. He's also the co-author of Winning Elections and Influencing Politicians for Library Funds, as well as Before the Ballot, Building Support for Library Funding. Every Library is a nonprofit organization with a mission to support libraries and librarians, both in the United States and abroad. The COVID-19 pandemic has had a great effect on libraries across the globe. Many people are relying on their services more than ever. At the same time, librarians are working diligently to figure out how to create new systems so that accessing library resources can be done safely during the pandemic. 
Library funding is imperative to help keep the doors open. In each election cycle, tens of millions of dollars are at stake for library funding, and individuals like us are asked to support initiatives to fund their local library when entering the voting booth. The Every Library Institute is dedicated to building voter support and advocating in favor of public funding for libraries. Patrick? Listeners of the Book Cougars podcast know how much we adore and use multiple library systems. Thank you for being here. And we were hoping you could just start with letting us know about the work of the every, I always, I keep wanting to call it the everyday library <laughs> institute because I think of going to the library every day, but it's every library. You know, that's really funny because and I'd say half the interviews that I do, they, they introduce us to the everyday library. <laughs> That's so <laughs> That's funny. Really funny. I just we didn't all, all want to be there every day. That's why. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we're, we're actually two organizations. We're Every Library, which is a 501c4 organization, um, which is a little bit different than your standard 501c3 nonprofit in that we can expend the bulk of our resources on political activity supporting a social cause. In our case, that social cause is libraries. Um, and then we have the Every Library Institute, which is our 501c3, which is kind of a supporter companion organization to the C4. And the Institute does a lot of training for librarians, a lot of public education. Um, but the big thing that it's built to do is a lot of the research that's needed to understand how and why people use libraries, how and why people support libraries understanding voter support um, and building those those kinds of data sets so we can better speak to our communities in, in whatever library is serving those communities. Well, that's great. Do you work with, so it's all public libraries you work with for the most part? You know, the bulk of our work is public libraries. And second to that, only because we don't hear about it as often is, is school libraries. Mm. You know, we do have a, a large, generous grant from Follett to work on a lot of school library issues. And I don't think a lot of people realize that we've lost something like 60% of school libraries across the country, which is hugely devastating because, of course, where those libraries are lost are communities that need them the most. You know, it's not the wealthy communities that are losing their school libraries. It's not the communities where kids don't have access to books at home that are losing. You know, it's, it's those ones where kids really need to have access to the books because that's their only source of it, you know. Public libraries in those areas are also generally not as well-funded, so they don't have as many open hours, homework help, and all those other kinds of things that libraries offer. So we're really proud of that school library work. Um, but our public library work is largely working around ballot initiatives, campaigns, and elections, which is where about 90% of library funding comes from. It's from the world of local voters and the world of local politicians. And so um, we're the only organization in the country that's entirely dedicated to working on ballot initiatives, local campaigns, local elections, and the local politics that ultimately fund the majority of our libraries. That's fantastic. How did the organization come into being? <laughs> um, you know, we were having a conversation at ALA in Anaheim about man, 10 years ago now, 2010-ish at the American Library Association big conference. And the discussion came around to, um, you know, what kind of organization, ALA does an amazing job at the federal level, our state associations do an amazing job at the state level, but there's no organization that's working on the local funding initiatives, which is where 90% of library funding comes from, like I said, 
we did some research and looked into it and one didn't exist. Mm. Um, we were really surprised by. And so we just kind of decided to do it because it needed to get done um, because the libraries were, I mean, this was coming out of the recession 2012-ish and libraries were still hurt by all that funding that they lost during the recession and trying to claw back out of it. And so that's why we created every library. That's excellent. I know it's always so hard whenever there's something on the ballot about public library funding. It's such a battle in a community. One of the things that I don't think people realize is just how much libraries are being impacted by that bigger discussion in the United States around government and taxes and their role in society. And so this bigger conversation, of course, is happening, you know, no new taxes, any taxes are bad tax. All of those kinds of, um, uh, all that rhetoric that exists out there is really starting to hurt libraries being a tax-funded government organization. And, and what's interesting is we've never seen anybody say, like, I hate libraries. Like, nobody's ever said that. We've done 107 ballot initiatives, and not once have we heard anybody say that they hate libraries, of course. But what they do say is, I hate taxes and I hate the government. Uh, that's kind of where libraries are seeing some erosion of that voter support. It's just that any tax is a bad tax kind of group. And it's having a pretty solid effect. I don't, I don't know if you know this either, but voter support for libraries is declining. I should say voter support for taxes in government, of course, is declining um, significantly. But that's impacting libraries to almost 20% of voter support has eroded. At a time when people are using libraries more than ever, isn't that the case? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, more people used libraries in 2008 than um, went to the movies, attended the NFL, NHL, the NBA, and Major League Baseball. More people attended libraries than all of those combined. So, wow. I mean, it's, it's significant how well used libraries are. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I have this image of you sitting behind a computer with, you know, these huge spreadsheets and looking at data sets all day long and then somehow trying to translate that information to support libraries so that their initiatives are successful at the mm-hmm. ballot, right? Mm-hmm. So how, how do you, I mean, not to get too into in the weeds necessarily on how you have success, because I also know funding is different in every state, right? The mm-hmm. way that it's mm-hmm. it's um, designed for the libraries. But how do you translate that people love libraries and the usage rates of libraries to having initiatives that are successful? I mean, what, what I think is really great about working on library ballot initiatives specifically is that there's never anything nefarious about it. You know, the, the people who are running those, those campaigns, the reason that we built every library the way we did is because the people who are running those local ballot initiatives are just, you know, moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, uncles and uncles. They're, they're not political operatives. They're not high paid anything. They're almost all done volunteer. I'd say, you know, 90% at least of library campaigns and elections are run on a completely volunteer basis with almost no funding, no training, no data, no resources. They, they're just people who want to see something good in their community happen. And they decide to plant their flag behind libraries and, and see a new library built or see the open hours ex- extended, all of those kinds of like things that they think make their community better. And so we're able to go in and do provide like that local training for those people who've never run campaigns before. You know, we provide some level of funding to local campaigns, data, 
everything that they basically need to run their campaign. And I'm not a campaign manager, so I'm not on the ground calling phones with them. They have to do that because it should come out of the community. You know, a, a real strong, authentic campaign should grow out of the community. And so we help them kind of understand how to do that and how to talk to people about libraries and the importance of libraries. Because the opposition to library funding is fairly well financed. You know, any of those organizations, you know, we've had the California Association of Realtors spend tens of thousands of dollars keeping libraries from passing a, a, a referendum. We've had the Americans for Prosperity PAC keep the people of Plainfield, Illinois, keep a library out of Plainfield, Illinois. Um, it had overwhelmingly voter support before they came in, but they sent out a bunch of robocalls that were, there was a bunch of lies about how much it was going to cost and what it was going to do and all this kind of stuff. I mean, even though we had data countering that, they were able to take that campaign. They outspent us like thousands and thousands of dollars to, you know, every, whatever we spent. So we are seeing like really structured and organi organized attacks on library funding initiatives. Oh, well, I'm really happy you exist as an organization to help combat that and, and educate people. Okay, can you talk a little bit, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about your organization's focus and then the American Library Association, the mm -hmm. ALA. Can you talk how the difference of the work, both organizations, how you approach it and what the intentions yeah. are behind each? The American Library Association is great. You know, I've been a member since like 2007. I've served on boards. I've been an ALA counselor, really involved in ALA. And they do really, really good work with their membership, talking to librarians, um, training librarians on various things, and then a lot of work at the federal level. Um, they're a 501c3 organization. And the, our actual political advocacy work is done out of our 501c4. So legally, you know, it's not like we're in competition because legally we're different kinds of organizations. We do different kinds of work. Um, our, our focus is very, very different. In fact, our, our co-founder was the membership director at ALA for 10 years before every library. You know, so we, we, we have a lot of love for them. And, you know, we're always working, trying to work, find new ways to work together on, on various issues. But we're, we're very separate and distinct. You know, there's not a whole lot of overlap between the kinds of work that we do. I have a nosy question, but there's mm -hmm. a reason I want to ask it, which is where does every library get its funding? You know, every library, uh, donations to the 501c4, we are able to turn every dollar that we raise into about $1,600 in stable funding for libraries. So if somebody makes a donation of $100, we're able to turn that into about $160,000 in uh, library funding because we're working on where that 90% of library funding comes from, right? That local level politics, local level legislation, local level campaigns and elections. And so we are funded about 30% by people who just want to see um, libraries succeed. Individuals, small donors, quite a few small donors are, are funding a lot of our work. And of course, we have librarians who are also making donations. And then we have the vendor community. So all those companies that sell books to libraries that sell furniture or um, databases or platforms, like you've heard of EBSCO or Gale or Mango Languages or Demco, a couple of smaller publishing houses, they're all helping to fund us because when libraries have more money, where are they going to spend it? Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's in their best interest to, to work with us and, and work on that funding matrix with us. 
so because of that, though, we're, we're really lucky in that everything we do for libraries is done pro bono. Like we don't charge campaign committees. We don't charge um, the libraries for any of our work. If a library has a local political issue, they just send us an email and we just start working with them. It's really that easy. We're not like that much of a black box. It's pretty easy to get a hold of us for those kinds of things. Yeah, that's good to know. All right, you librarian <laughs> listeners out there, now you know where the help is. They probably know already, but you know. <laughs> well, Patrick, you started as a librarian yourself then? Mm-hmm. And- yeah, you know, I started, yeah, I started actually as a school librarian which is easily the best job that I've ever had in my entire life. And if there's any way that I I could go back to being an elementary school librarian, that would be amazing for me. You know, Walter the farting dog is right at my reading and interest level, you know, so, um, you know, it's perfect. Yeah. (laughs) I have, Chris, I don't know about you, but I have vivid memories of particularly my elementary school library. And I don't have a ton of childhood memories, but that like wandering around the, the stacks when, you know, it was your homeroom's time to go visit the school library, just is near and dear to my heart and really established me as a reader, I think, from a young age. And my daughter is a school social worker, and she was at a school, a public school in Denver that had their school library closed. And it was devastating to the kids because you're absolutely right. It was a community where it wasn't as if they could necessarily just, you know, find a different resource available to them to get books to have at home. So, how does the work that you do for school libraries differ? Because funding for schools, of course, is so different than funding for a local public library. You said you yeah. had some help but with Follett, which is a, I think they're, they sell books, right? Follett? Yeah, they uh, a bunch of different services to school libraries, but their big okay. focus is school libraries. Yeah. And they, they do, of course, do some public library stuff, but their, their role is really in the school library space. With school libraries, the work, I think, is a little bit more interesting because it's really dependent upon shining a light on the largest classroom in the school that nobody really talks about, um, that, that's kind of hidden within the school. You know, they, that the parents all find out about the children's homework. They find out about, you know, what the kid did or didn't do in school. You know, like there's conversations around the, the actual classroom itself, but not a whole lot of information goes to parents about the school library. Um, and so uh, a big part of our work is, is educating the public about the role of school libraries in, in classrooms, because it really is the only room in the school, besides like maybe the cafeteria that sees every student that helps students with some of their own interests. You know, there's, there's a level of, of freedom there when the, the work that they're doing in their classroom is so scripted. These are the, this is what we're learning this year. These are the, these are the topics that we cover. Um, and the library really gives students that rare opportunity to really explore something. You know, if they learned about something in school and they really want to dive into it and learn a lot more, the school library is really the only place that they can do it. You know, if they find out about engineering and they want to learn how to become an engineer, there's not often time in the classroom to give that student the one-on-one in-depth, you know, knowledge that they need. But that opportunity to go to the, to the school library during lunch or during the classroom visits it's just, I mean, the opportunity is just, the, the benefits are immeasurable, you know. I have the same kind of uh, memory that you have about going to the school library and just really loving that time. And I have a lot of really positive memories around the school library. But those memories are largely because I was free to learn what 
I wanted to learn anything from how to make paper airplanes to, you know, how to build bridges or, you know, computers, whatever you want, you can learn it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, I still remember my first research paper at my school library. It was a K through six library and it must've been like second grade, maybe third. And my report was about giraffes. And I really mm-hmm. enjoyed learning mm-hmm. about giraffes. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's remember great. That. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. 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 But, you know, parents don't know about this, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the parents don't, I mean, even during like the student, the parent teacher conferences, the libraries oftentimes aren't included on those tours or not a part of the, the parents interaction with the school. And so, you know, how do we surface that and how do we put money behind teaching parents what happens there, why what's, what happens there is so critical, um, and what they can do if their school library is, you know, threatened with closures. That, I mean, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of energy. It takes a lot of money to do that kind of work. And honestly, it's because nobody else is doing it, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We just, we're doing a big campaign with the Pennsylvania School Library Association right now where we got... Um, their, their legislative candidates to fill up questionnaires about whether or not they support their school libraries. They overwhelmingly did, but it was great to get it on paper and measured and looked at um, and published so the public could kind of see that they planted their, their stake, their, their, their flag in that school library issue, you know? Yeah. Yeah. That's fantastic. Well, Patrick, thank you so much for your time today. I think we were going to end with the question how people can directly support the organization. Yeah. It's the giving season, so please let people know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, um, I mean, if you're interested in our work, if you're interested in seeing libraries continue to serve their communities, keep their doors open, um, I think it's going to be a really critical time for libraries because, you know, all the ISPs, those internet service providers, said they weren't going to shut down people's internet at home. But at the end of the COVID, you know, those bills are going to come due. People didn't get free internet. As we as a country start moving out of this COVID environment, we're going to need to help people find jobs. Um, and you can only do that on the internet. A lot of people are going to lose their internet at home. The library is the one place that they can go. Plus breaking down a lot of the social isolation that has happened, a lot of mental health support in libraries. And so, you know, I, I really want to see libraries succeed in the next couple of years. And we're doing, we're launching a, a, a number of campaigns to help libraries get involved. And a couple of places that, that you can help us ensure that libraries succeed. If you want to give to the political action committee to do the frontline work, that's so critical. If you go to everylibrary.org slash mask monthly, if you start a monthly donation of a dollar or more, we'll send you an I Love My Library mask. Um, so you can show off your support for libraries wherever you go. If you just want to give a straight donation, you can go to everylibrary.org and make a donation. There's also... Um, places to volunteer if you want to join us and, and, and give us some of your time. We'd love that. And then if you want to support the 501c3 side, the um, public education and the data and the research, everylibrary.org, um, you can go make donations there, um, sign up to, to volunteer, a number of other things. And you guys can put your pens down. I will put all of these links in the show notes so no one panic. You don't have to rewind and keep listening to that over and over. Um, But it's really that offers such great opportunity for people, particularly I know some people, you know, want to give of their their money and some people want to give of their time and their talent. So Mm -hmm. it's lovely that you offer both options um, for Mm -hmm. that. I know a lot of people are political minded, but don't always know, as you said, where they want to plant their flag. So 
for those book lovers and library lovers out there, this is certainly a fantastic organization to consider doing that with. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Thank you so much. Have a great day, team. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone. Right.